Hi, this is Lyric. Welcome to my show. Here is how I normally think when I'm on my way to the campus. Cold, bright. Wish I had my sunglasses. Walk faster, late again. Always. Hi, I'm. What's her name again? Look at those legs. Don't be stupid. Black. Um, coffee. Late. Faster. And. There's definitely more thoughts in my head. Well, it is said that one of the harder things to, to describe or to be properly aware of is what it feels like to be inside our minds. The second by second flow of images, words, feelings, and sounds inside our heads is what philosophers call consciousness. All day. This consciousness is filled with a tongue of material that flashes by an observing eye, so fast and is so multi-layered and densery. We can generally only rest and focus on the minuscule part of what is before us. There are waves of sensations, fog banks of moods, collisions of ideas, and swirls of associations and impressions. Consciousness doesn't just unfold on a single camera screen of the mind either. We can think of it more like a dozen or more moods and emotions are projected at once in a fractured collection of images, reminiscent of a puzzling collage of avant-garde videos. Most of what we have felt and have been will disappear before it can ever be held and examined. Furthermore. Little of the richness of consciousness ever makes it out into public discussion. When we open our mouth and tell other people, for example, what we think and how we're feeling, we have no option but to radically simplify the nature of experience. On the situation mentioned before, when people ask me how about the way to campus, I would probably describe it as, I walked quite fast. Still late, just like a journalist filling a hundred-word piece on the battle of political revolution to an indifferent domestic audience a continent away, and the general social code means we don't remind one another of what an inaccurate portrait this must necessarily be. In my opinion, part of the reason why we are not quite aware of the true nature of consciousness. Is a fault of literature.
this thought in literature has changed by the rise of the term stream of consciousness. It was first used by psychologist William James in 1890, and he describes it like this. Consciousness then does not appear to itself as chopped up in bits. It is nothing joint. It flows. A river or a stream are the metaphors by which it is most naturally described. In talking of it hereafter, let's call it the stream of thought, consciousness, or subjective life. This declaration offers thoughts an effective technique to take readers directly into the characters' minds, letting the readers listen to the characters' thoughts and feelings as those thoughts and feelings occur. Well, it carries some risk, because often a character's thoughts and feelings might not be decent or even comprehensible. However, if used well, it offers a glimpse at the humanity of fiction characters that few other literary techniques can deliver. Let's look at some examples to see exactly what this means in practice. One of the earliest and best-known practitioners of stream of consciousness was the modernist James Joyce. Who lived from 1882 to 1941? One of the most famous examples occurs in the last chapter of his novel *Ulysses*, in which Molly Bloom delivers a 4,391-word sentence, all of which is is internal monologue. It ends like this: "I was a flower of the mountain, yes." When I pull the rose in my hair like the Dobbertson girls used, or shall I wear a red? Yes, and how he kissed me under the Moorish wall, and I thought well as well him as another, and then I asked him with my eyes to ask again yes, and then he asked me would I yes to say yes, my mountain flower, and first I put my arms around him yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breath. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad, and yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Whew. You can see how the narrative attempts to jump around foregoing standard syntax in order to portray something closer to the thoughts that occur in our brains. Also, famously, Joyce uses no punctuation in this chapter except for the final period. Which is also the final period of the book. In this way, he is able to portray the stream that William James talked about. And while the excerpt passage may be difficult to understand at first, the effect of the eternal thought process shines through. Another famous practitioner of stream of consciousness was the Nobel Prize-winning author William Faulkner. Who lived from 1897 to 1962? This example is an opening passage from his novel, *The Sound and the Fury*. From this example, we can see how stream of consciousness often can be confusing, as well as intimate. Please guess what is going on while I'm reading this passage. Through the fence, between the curling flower spaces, I could see them hitting. They were coming toward where the flag was, and I went along the fence. They took the flag out 
and they were hitting. Then they pulled the flag back and they went to the table. And he hit, and the other hit. Do you know what is happening in this scene? Well, what the character is describing here is two people playing golf. It certainly would have been clearer if just say so, while the author uses stream of consciousness to draw us into the character's mind. When the character looks at golfers, he doesn't see golfers necessarily. He sees two men hitting. The result is that we, as readers, are much closer to the character's perspective, even if we are a little confused. In character-driven fiction, our author's goal is to bring the readers closer to the character's thoughts and feelings. And there are many methods and techniques for achieving this. Well, one of the more modern and effective techniques is the use of stream of consciousness, whereby the captured thoughts and feelings are laid before the reader directly, unfiltered, on the terms of that the character's own mind and perspective. Although to some readers they can be confusing, it also can bring the readers close enough to the story that he experiences the character's life as it happens. Despite the monstrous complexity, the use of the stream of consciousness in literature arguably still amounts to a radical simplification of the true nature of the experience. After all, the novel exists only as words, whereas a real stream of consciousness includes a disjointed and random streaming of films and pictures, images constantly fit across consciousness. Sometimes we'll see something extraordinarily specific, like a window with stained glass or images of a boat on Hyde Park, or suddenly remember looking out of the train on a journey through Germany. But there will be no further details or real sense as to why this has come into our heads right now. Nonetheless, Literature is hugely significant because it helps us to start to see what we are up against when we try to understand our own minds. It's not a case of just opening up a hatch and finding a welter of well-formulated thoughts. When we turn our attention to ourselves, we won't be able to locate crystalline attitudes and precise ideas. We will discover only chaos and elusive thoughts. More significantly, it's from this prime evil mulch that we will have to assemble the solid and serious plans we need to navigate through existence. We'll have to decide what we care about, how we should direct our lives, who we should try to be. Knowing more about the stream of consciousness prepares us for the work that we have to do to pull out from the stream, that is, the decent and accurate thoughts we need. The mind won't automatically yield clear answers when we ask ourselves what we think or where we might direct our energies. There can naturally be a temptation to avoid the hard work, and there are some alternatives to proper introspection. Some of the content we hold in our minds is 
coherent and very easy to grasp, but it suffers from a marked drawback. It isn't really ours. It's secondhand, stale, and a derivative bank of ideas and plans. We have certain notions in our heads that come not from our deeper resources of feeling and intuition, but from what we have absorbed uncritically from outside, from what we read in the newspaper or heard from parents or friends. These are our received ideas. We don't really need to think hard at all to regurgitate them. They're just right waiting in the prepacked form in the reception room of our minds, and yet, it is only the thoughts and feelings that are originally unprocessed that come from the carbons in ourselves. Those are the ones richest in information, even if they are also painfully the hardest to make sense of. Knowing a little more about the stream of consciousness shows us. That our brains are a more delicate, messy organ than we normally allow to imagine. Many of the introspective tasks we set ourselves turn out to be more fiddly, and are going to need more resources than we typically allow for. Yet the rewards for mastering introspection correctly are immense. For it's by becoming experts in our own stream of consciousness. That we have the chance truly to understand who we are, and thereby to align our lives with the way we really feel and with the goals that can truly satisfy us when we reach them.